feels so wrong, but I love it. Yeah, I just wanted to sit down. Anybody got a lighter? Wow. All right. Hey, uh, now I got to get my mind back in a, back in a, a ministry place. Because um, my mind was not in ministry when I was listening to that the first time. Um, anyway, hey, welcome. Welcome, you guys. Glad that you're here. Welcome here in-house, out there online, wherever you are. And I did this last service. I'm going to do it again. Karibu namungu akubariki to those of you who are out there in Tanzania. That's Swahili for welcome and God bless you. I know that our friends, uh, Pastor Malali and his congregation, were watching live first service. I don't know if they are again, but he asked me, he goes, can you speak a little bit slower? Because I have to translate from English to Swahili. I went, dude, that is not in my nature. So it's, it's going to be hard. I did the best I could. But let's get back into it. We are, we are back to our regularly scheduled teaching series, Jesus the Servant Messiah. It's, it's in the Gospel of Mark. If you missed any, and I, I can't imagine there's anybody who hasn't heard this yet, but if you missed any of the first three uh, of this, the last three, I would say, of this series, go back and listen to them. Um, I kind of share my heart about um, some of the things that are going on. We talk about some of our financial situation. Um, so it's important. If you missed any of those, go back and take a quick listen. But I think we need to get on with understanding the Gospel of Mark. There's, it's no mistake that we are in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is one of these that that is different in the other Gospels in that it really... It's just, it's rapid fire, bang, 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 the miracles of Jesus as he travels around the Galilee, the things that he does. And it really, Mark is kind of a man of few words. He doesn't really expand an awful lot on the things that are going on. He just says, and this happened, moving on to the next thing. And this happened, moving on. He's very brief and to the point, and that is intentional. It's not accidental, and I'll explain that to you here in a minute. But as it relates to the things that have gone on in the last few weeks, um, here's what the Lord kind of reminded me of, is that when you underestimate the miraculous in your life, you don't expect it. You downplay it, minimize it. You don't even really look at it. You don't plan for it. You can be surprised a lot in the goodness and the mercy of God. And here's one thing that I have learned for sure in these last few weeks. You, this church, Discover Community Church and our friends out there online all over the place, you are a generous people. You are generous. And I thank you. And it has been miraculous to see how you have responded. Now, we are, I'll update more in detail um, kind of next week, probably as the month closes out, I'll have a better picture of how things are going. Um, but they're going incredibly well, incredibly well. And I'll be able to give you a figure next month on, or next week on where we are. But leading up to this, I've been very transparent. The last few weeks has felt a little bit like just kind of laying my heart out there and just hoping somebody doesn't stomp on it. And it's been just the opposite. You guys have been warm. You've been encouraging. Um, but again, we've seen the miraculous. But since I've been transparent with you, I want to do it again. When you look at the things that God can do, when we started this at the beginning of this month, what a difference from the beginning of this month until right now. But I have to admit to you that I looked at where we were 
financially as a church. I looked at the mountain that had to be overcome. And I knew in my mind, God is good. And God is, is a worker of miracles in, in, the, in the world today. And there's no reason why I can't expect that he's not going to work a miracle now. I knew that in my mind. But there's always this segmented part of my brain that says, better start planning for what life looks like after this doesn't work out. So I started thinking like, well, I could do ministry from my basement. I can set up a camera in the basement and preach from the basement and we'll see what happens. I knew that God works miracles. I've seen it. I expect it. I totally believe in it. And yet there's a part of my mind that's like, okay, he can, but will he? Maybe you should start thinking about life after. And I didn't want to do that. But the response, church's response has been miraculous. There's no other way to say it. It's been miraculous. Now, I know that there are many of you out there online, in here, in-house, who say, well, miracle, sure, but I sat at my kitchen table, we discussed it, and I wrote a check. That's not a miracle. That's me writing a check. There's no difference. Because you, those of you who wrote a check, those of you who put pennies in the offering box, those of you who gave of yourself sacrificially to help towards this cause, didn't do so just because I crafted a really clever message that tugged at your heartstrings and made you want to do that. Or you said, I've got extra money. Why not? This cash is just taking up space on my table. I need a place for it to go. Might as well go there. It didn't work like that in anybody's home. I know that. It was a miracle. And it was a miracle of faith. Faith is a gift from God. And when we expect those things in our life, our faith in what God can and will do with our obedience, with our acting in faith, that's where the miracles happen. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about that a little bit. For those of you who said that, that wasn't the miraculous. That was me just saying, okay, I'll do it. And I wrote out a check. I saw it. I put pen to paper. That wasn't a miraculous act right there. Yes, it was. We're going to talk about that here. Let's go back. Let's go back to when Jesus is traveling around with his disciples. Okay? He's traveling around with them. They are performing miracles throughout the Galilee. They're doing incredible things. And he meets with them at one point, and he starts to tell them or starts to, I think, prepare their hearts for the idea, look, I'm not always going to be here with you. I'm going to go somewhere else to do something else, and you guys are going to carry on. And he says this. He's trying to kind of comfort them when he tells them, I'm going to be leaving. And this is John 14, 12. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. So there was still a lot of work to be done, as there is today. But there was still a lot of work to be done for the disciples. And they had, they had witnessed a lot of miracles. They had been traveling around with Jesus. They had seen so many incredible things at this point. But it was always with Jesus up front. It was always kind of 
sitting back and watching Jesus do the miraculous, do these things. And then they would travel around and they would talk about it. And then Jesus would do these things. So in most cases, they were just watching him do these things as they traveled and learned. But for them to be able to continue the mission that Jesus started, the commission that he gives them ultimately, they would need to act not only in faith, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. They would absolutely need those things to continue. And that is where the miraculous comes from. And that's what I've seen the outpouring of you here in this church, acting in faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the level of sacrificial generosity that I have seen from some very unlikely sources, that takes a step in faith that you don't just say, oh, what the heck, let's see what happens. It is a very real step in faith, and that comes as a gift from God. So that's the power. That's really what we're going to talk about here. That's the power that is held within each one of you as members of the body of Christ. It's that power of the Holy Spirit that cumulatively together can move mountains. Think about this. Even if Scripture is unclear, depending on... There have been scholars forever who try to really quantify the miracles that Jesus did. How many people did he heal? How many people did he deliver? How many people did he save in his time of earthly ministry? We don't really know, and you can go back and forth. Some scriptures say many were saved, or, you know, you could debate the numbers, but let's just say, let's just say it's thousands of people that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, had hands-on contact with. It made a difference to those for sure. But even if it was thousands, it's just a drop in the bucket of how many people were around at that time. Certainly today, I mean, there's billions today. But back then, even thousands was just a small portion. Yeah, it made a difference to those ones. But Why do you think Jesus would spend so much time? Jesus' ministry here on earth was only about three years. Would you, if you knew I have only three years to accomplish this mission or this task, would you waste time going around having individual meetings and individual contacts? Sure, there were some that were in bigger settings, for sure. But would you do that, or would you be looking like, I need to maximize my opportunities? So I'm I'm looking to fill arenas. I'm looking to fill you know, hordes of people every chance that I get. And there were aspects of that. But I don't think he'd spend so much time traveling around doing that if, if just that act of, of receiving Christ and getting eternal life, getting that salvation, if that was the only goal. See, I believe this. As I prayed about this, like why, why especially when we talk about the book of Mark, where it's just really rapid fire through all the miracles that Jesus does, why would it be so much about these miracles? And I think this, I think this is the point, and especially in Mark when he doesn't go in depth. Okay, it does, It's just, this happened, moving on. This happened, moving on. Mark is very much a man of, of few words. And if, if the idea was to call attention to the act of the miraculous... 
he probably would have expanded on that much more. Jesus healed this man. This man was blind. This man was lame. Jesus healed him. And now let's talk about how that man's life changed. Let's talk about the difference he made in his life as as he went forward. It would have been much more about that. See, I think the Gospel of Mark specifically is all about showing us that the miraculous was made manifest in Christ, not to draw our attention to the act, but to draw our attention to the source. I think as we go through all these miracles, and there's many, many chapters, and we're going to talk about them all in depth, but the idea is not for us to be drawn to the miracle itself, but to the source of those miracles. I think that's what it's all about. And in fact, Paul writes later in Ephesians, Ephesians 3, 20, 21, says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. See, the idea, the power of the Holy Spirit within the body of Christ That's where the power comes from. And it's been misunderstood. It's been downplayed. It's been ignored too much in the modern church. Too much in this church, I would say, up until until now. I started thinking about this. Where is the power, the magnetic power of, of Christianity, being a follower of Christ? How is that attractive to somebody? And I started thinking that a Christianity that revolves around getting up early on a Sunday, corralling the kids, getting them out of the house if you have kids, but if not, just having that coffee. Maybe you're up late before, but okay, I got to go to church. You get dressed, you come to church, you fight traffic, you find a parking spot, you come in, you listen to, to message and worship, but then you go home and just live your life like everybody else lives their life. How is that magnetic? How is that something that's going to give glory to God? How is that something that anybody's going to see you living your life and go, I want that. Tell me how you get that. That's not going to be, that's not going to draw people to the gospel message of Jesus and bring glory to God. It's barely attractive to those of us who do know Jesus. It's so easy for other things in our lives to take precedence over getting out and gathering together and spending time with each other and with the Lord when there are so many things competing for your time. And if it's not, I'll tell you what it is, it's safe. It's not threatening. It's not challenging. If you go to church and you come in, you get your coffee, you sit down and listen to a message and then you leave and go home, you're not going to be challenged. It's safe. It's comfortable. You know what to expect pretty much every time. It's going to go like this, like this, like this. Pastors at churches like that rarely get asked tough questions. They rarely get challenged with things like, you know, I don't know. I'm going to have to to pray about that in order to give you an answer. I'm going to have to study that in order to give you an answer. It's really It's comfortable. A congregation can drift in and out. You can miss weeks at a time and not really miss anything. Here's the other thing you can do. You can invite a friend to a church like that because chances are nothing weird is going to happen. 
Have you ever said, I'd like to invite my neighbor, but what if they do that one weird thing? How am I going to explain that to my neighbor? I hope they don't do anything weird on that day. Now, please don't be tempted to two things. There are two extremes we can go. We can dismiss the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the miraculous, the power of of the signs and wonders. We can dismiss those things in our lives entirely. Or on the other end of the spectrum, we can pridefully think that somehow we're better than those churches or those pastors who don't embrace those things. I think it's a prideful trap when we start believing that because we embrace the gifts, because we embrace the Holy Spirit, because we do these things that we're better than those others. That's a prideful place to be, and I don't think we should ever go there. The body of Christ needs everyone. It needs all of those churches because they all belong to him. And it needs the way that they have been called to do ministry. We're all trying to win souls. We're all trying to let people know who Jesus Christ is. That's what we're all trying to do. And some churches do it different ways. And we need all of those types in order to fulfill the commission that we were given. Now, that being said, Discover Community Church is a charismatic, Bible-believing church. That's the label. If you want to put a label on it, that's who we are. Now, as soon as I say the word charismatic, some people go, I had no idea they were charismatic. Where are they hiding them? Because here's what a lot of people think is charismatic. Somebody's going to be flopping around on the floor like a fish out of water. Somebody will probably be swinging from the rafters. Somebody at some point is going to be slain in the spirit. I'm going to facepalm somebody. They'll fall over into the arms of someone behind. We laugh because those are the things that like, that's kind of silly. But that's a part of it. That is a part of it. Those things happen and they are real. Now, that's one end of the spectrum, so they don't happen all the time, but they can. Those are things that happen when the Spirit is moving. So I don't want you to get caught up in that terminology. There are thousands of churches with thousands of different callings in the way that they reach the lost. And there are also hundreds, if not thousands, of definitions of what charismatic means. So I don't want anybody to hear charismatic and go, I had no idea. Let's start looking for a more vanilla-flavored church. Let's talk about this. Now, I don't normally get my theology from Wikipedia, okay? And I don't recommend that you do either. But I just went, I just went to Google, and I Googled the definition of charismatic because I wanted to see what was out there in the world. And actually, Wikipedia actually put it in in a really succinct way that I kind of like. So I'm going to read this to you. This is from Wikipedia. Charismatic Christianity, also known as spirit-filled Christianity, is a form of Christianity that emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, and modern-day miracles, get this part, as an everyday part of a believer's life. I love that. 
And that, in a nutshell, is it. That doesn't, that doesn't get into the debate of, are you neo-charismatic? Are you hyper-charismatic? That doesn't get into any of those kind of debates. What it says is that it emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, and modern-day miracles as an everyday part of a believer's life. I like it. If I had to set behind a definition, that would be it. So if we set aside, though, the device, anytime you put a label on something, it gets divisive immediately. And I don't want to be that, but here at DCC, we believe the gifts of the Spirit are alive and active, and they're alive and active in the church today. They didn't, they didn't quit with the original apostles. Some people say that. The term is called a cessationist. I'll talk during our bedrock class on what that means and what that is. But there are some very well-respected Bible scholars who are cessationists. They believe that that stuff all ended with the apostles. It was just there to really give the church a kickstart. That's not what I believe, though. I believe the spiritual gifts, as Scripture says, were given by God as he determines for the ultimate purpose of bringing glory to God and making known his son, Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people see the term charismatic. If you look it up or if you've talked to anybody, they believe that speaking in tongues is one of the key indicators. If you don't speak in tongues, you are not charismatic. If you don't go to a church where they do that routinely, it's not a charismatic church. I don't believe that's how it works. I believe God gives the gifts as he determines We can talk more about that later. I wasn't kidding when I suggested you sign up for the bedrock class. We'll talk more in detail about that kind of thing there. But in keeping with that idea, let's let's keep in that idea of, of miracles being a part of the everyday life of a Christian. Let's get into Mark and let's talk about how that applies to that concept. So, We saw the last time, it feels like ages ago, Pastor Gabe taught, and she taught about Jesus. Um, He had just been baptized. He had gone through his time in the desert or in the wilderness being tempted, and then he had then started, he came into the Galilee region, chose his original guys, and then begins ministry. That's where he saw. So the last thing was Mark 1, 17, 18, and Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will have you become fishers of people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Okay, that's the beginning. That's kind of our jumping off point for today. So it was the Galilee region. Let me show you a map here. This isn't the best map, but it's the one I could find. This this is the Sea of Galilee. Now up top there, uh, kind of the northwestern part, there's Bethsaida and there's Capernaum. Now Jesus would have been coming from way down south here, down in the Dead Sea region, after, after being baptized in the Jordan and after then spending time. So he would have traveled up north there, somehow ending up Bethsaida, Capernaum, in that area. And that's where we kick off right here. Jesus and his disciples then head out to begin their work. Mark 1.21, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and began to teach. Okay, let's, let's look at that a little bit closer. Capernaum was kind of a big city, at least regionally, about 1,500 people or so. Nazareth, by contrast, was about 500 people. So this is a bigger city. It's not Jerusalem big, but it's bigger. 
the temple there, not the temple, I'm sorry, the, the um, synagogue there, as any town, pretty much any town had a synagogue. Some were very formal buildings, some were more like somebody's living room. But it was, the, the whole idea of synagogue was very um, democratic. It was a kind of thing where anybody, really any adult Jewish male, could go in and speak their piece in the synagogue. So they would have some formal teaching, but then they would have pretty much anybody that had something to share or an opinion or an idea. They could get up and they could speak and share that, and then they would talk about it back and forth. And it was sort of a, of a again, a democratic kind of a thing. So it wouldn't have been super unusual for somebody like Jesus to come in and start speaking at the synagogue. The temple now, the temple was much more rigid and they had their, their formal rituals to do thing that jumps out at me here, they went into Capernaum and immediately, that word immediately is a Hebrew word, eutheos. It's used in the Gospel of Mark more than all the other Gospels put together. And I think that really kind of crystallizes what the whole idea of the Gospel of Mark is, is that that Jesus gets right to it. The word eutheos means directly with no delay. So he didn't say, you know, I've been through all these things. I got my guys together now. Let's go on a staff retreat and prepare our hearts for what comes next. Jesus said, you know what, let's get to it. And he immediately, and it over and over again uses that word immediately, gets right to what God has called him to do. He's passionate, he's burdened, and he's like, I, I, can't, I can't wait. We have to get immediately to this. So he does. And where he goes is this synagogue in Capernaum. Now, the very synagogue that he is teaching at still stands today. In fact, here's a picture of it, what it looks like today. If you go there to Israel, to Capernaum, you can see this. I've gone and I've, I've stood there and better yet, walked inside. Now, the top part that you see right there is actually a 4th century remodel. So it's been remodeled. But this part down below, if you can kind of see it where it's all dark down here, that's the original... Uh, It's made of basalt. It's the foundation of the original synagogue that Jesus would have been speaking in. Here's another picture of it really quick, just from the inside. So again, you can go and you can stand in there. They would have somebody stand up front. Typically, the speaker would be up front, and the audience would be back here listening. And then when your turn was over, you'd step aside, and somebody else could speak. Happened all the time. We don't know for sure what Jesus taught. But can you imagine what it would have been like to be there? You're, you're in a whole bunch of guys and you're in your synagogue. It's on the Sabbath and, and everybody's talking and, and you're, you're sharing scripture with each other. And then this guy that maybe they knew him, maybe they didn't, and Nazareth wasn't that far away, but they probably didn't know for sure who he was. He comes in bringing this smelly group of fishermen with him. Because remember, they just left. They dropped their nets and Follow Jesus. And this is the first stop that they came to. So I probably smelled a little weird, weren't so quite familiar maybe with that area. It's hard to say. We don't know. And we don't know what he taught, but we do know that it had to be powerful. We know that because of the next scripture, Mark 1.22. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. That very same idea of teaching as one who had authority, that's also brought up in Matthew 7 um, after the Sermon on the Mount. 
let's talk about that idea of authority. First of all, the scribes. Scribes were, at best, the scribes were interpreters of the law. Okay, they would read it, they knew it, and they would interpret it. And they would help if anybody had differences of opinion. It would help kind of referee those differences of opinion and interpret Scripture. And it can be fairly clinical, maybe, or lifeless, um, just the interpretation of what Scripture says. But that's not what was happening right here. He was teaching them as one having authority. That word authority in the Greek is, is the Greek word exousia more or less like that pronunciation. But what it means is delegated authority, same as the originator. So whoever wrote down the original thing, spoke the first original law, whatever the, the original was, that person having that authority is the same as the originator of that law. Which means not only can you say, well, it says this, and this is how I would interpret that. You can say, you know what, it says this, but here's the heart behind it. Here's really what that means. Here's how that applies to you. That's the authority that Jesus was teaching. And it wasn't some cold clinical, this is what it says right here in Deuteronomy. It was, let me explain to you how this impacts your life. Let me explain the meaning behind this. That's the authority that he was speaking with. It's the same word, that word exousia. We see that throughout Scripture. And it's used, pertinent to our teaching here, it's used in a couple interesting places. First of all, Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That word there, authority, is exousia, the same thing. And then my, one of my favorite scriptures of all time, Luke 10, 19. Jesus talking to his disciples, he says, Behold, I have given you authority to walk on snakes and scorpions and authority over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. That word authority is exousia. It's delegated. So as the Father delegated authority to Jesus, Jesus then delegates that authority through his Holy Spirit to us. Now, as Jesus is teaching, back to the scene at the synagogue, as Jesus is teaching, one of the listeners in the audience couldn't keep quiet, couldn't hold. Something must have stirred them to the point to where they couldn't keep quiet anymore. Mark 1.23, just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. Okay, a couple things about that. First of all, they wouldn't have known that he was unclean. They wouldn't have known he had an unclean spirit. If he did, I mean, there were plenty of people with unclean spirits, but they wouldn't have allowed him in the synagogue. But for some reason, he just couldn't contain himself anymore. Another note here on possession, because we're going to talk about that here. There's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding about demonic possession. I'll break it down to the bottom line here. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have given him your heart, you have made him the Lord of your life. Scripture tells us you belong to him. And you cannot belong to two different masters. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have given him your heart. He is the Lord of your life. You cannot be possessed by a demon. It doesn't mean you can't be tormented, demonized, deceived, lied to, poked at, prodded, any of those unpleasant things. 
but you cannot be possessed. Back to our scripture, though. So sensing for some reason it was stirred inside this man, this demon hiding out in this man, his cover is about to be blown or whatever it was, he could no longer keep quiet. This demon spirit boldly but foolishly decides he's going to confront Jesus. Mark one twenty four, saying, What business do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's such a cool scripture on so many levels. Look at these points here. First of all, this demon hiding inside, he knows who Jesus is. Jesus didn't come into the temple and said, okay, listen up. I'm Jesus of Nazareth. You've all heard of me. Sit down, let me teach you. He doesn't do that. He just walks in and starts teaching. This demon, though, knows who Jesus is. And he also uses the plural us. Do you notice that? He uses the word us. Now, that could be maybe. We don't know for sure. Scripture doesn't go into that. Were there others there in that synagogue who were also demon-possessed? We don't know. Could it be just the bigger overall us, we? During our demon meeting, we talked about you. We know who you are. You laugh, but Scripture tells us they had meetings. Here's the other thing that jumps out to me. The Jewish audience was probably really confused. We know who you are, Holy One of God. That was normally, if ever spoken out loud, it was reserved for the high priest. But somehow or another, this demon knows that's who it is and addresses Jesus that way. Now, chances are, the other Jews in the audience, even if they had heard of who Jesus was, probably just thought, yeah, that guy's nuts for calling Jesus that. It probably didn't register to them until a few minutes from then, really, what was going on there. Mark 1.25, and Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. It wasn't a request. It wasn't a, hey, if you have time, be quiet and come out of him. Now, movies will tell you that it's much, much more complicated to stand up against the demonic and to exercise someone. Any of you ever see the movie The Exorcist? I watched it when I was way too young to see that. And it terrified me. But to this day, it left a mark in my head. I don't recommend it. If you didn't see it, don't go watch it. There's no point. But I'll tell you this. Ever since then, in TV shows even to today, make it seem like standing up against a demon requires a priest, a certain amount of holy water, a cross, a whole lot of prayer, a whole lot of battling back and forth, and maybe you'll win, maybe you won't. But it's going to be ugly. This is no complicated ritual. This is Jesus demanding as if one in authority. Be quiet and come out of him. We see that idea, James 4, 7, submit therefore to God, but resist the devil and he will flee. There it boils it down to just the word resist. I tell people when I'm doing deliverance ministry, and we have a great deliverance ministry here at Discover. I'll talk to you about it sometime if you have questions. But I tell people this. If you're going to take authority over the demonic in your life, it's not a question. It's not a, hey, it'd be really great if you left. It's nothing like that. And I equate it to who out there has a younger sibling? Anybody? 
Okay, who out there has kids? And if you don't, you'll still know what I'm talking about. If your younger sibling, or let's say one of your children, you walk into your bedroom, and, and that person is in your bedroom, and they're rifling through your drawers. They're just pulling stuff out and throwing it all over the place. Would you say, hey, I'd rather you didn't do that. Maybe, maybe if it's not too much trouble, can you go somewhere else and, and not do that in here anymore? No, that's not how you would say it. You would say, you don't belong here. That's not yours. Get out right now or I'll kick your... I can't say it in church. You would have that kind of authority. That's the same authority with which we can speak to the demonic. We can demand that they leave. It's not a question. It's not a, I hope you do, and let's see if it works. It's in the name of Jesus, be gone. And they have to. Now, that doesn't mean, just like your little brother on the way out of your room, they might not knock over the lamp. They might not make some noise and create a fuss, but they're heading towards the door because they have to. Because you, in the name of Jesus, have commanded them to flee. And that's exactly what we see happening here. It's not complicated. Doesn't mean they won't make a fuss. Mark 1.26, after throwing him into convulsions and crying out with a loud voice, the unclean spirit came out of him. Demons hate to give up ground. It's one thing I've learned in the years of deliverance ministry I've done. They don't like to give up their hiding place. And once you find them, they will create a commotion and a fuss on the way out. They don't want to just leave quietly, but they do have to leave. And they're experts for looking at loopholes. So if you form your demand in the phrase of a question, they'll say, hmm, was that really a demand? I don't know. Let me just hide out for a little while and hope you ignore that I'm here. They have to give it up. Okay. Do you think, let me ask you a question. Scripture doesn't say this. Do you think, picturing that scene in the synagogue, the guy's rolling around on the floor, and then the demon comes out of him, do you think they could physically see this demon? Do you think they could it actually, they actually saw it come up and out? Or do you think they just saw the evidence and say he was rolling around on the floor speaking in this weird voice, and now he looks okay? So, we, so it's gone. I've seen it both ways, honestly. I've seen it both ways. I've seen by the evidence that I'm seeing, I can tell that the demon has fled, and I've physically seen demons flee. That sounds weird, doesn't it? I tell you that because I want to normalize the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. It happens. Demons are real. If you believe in angels, you have to believe in demons. They are real, and they submit to the authority of Jesus. However it looked, though, whether they could physically see it or not, I don't know. But it must have been a sight to see because here's the result, Mark 1.27. And they were all amazed. So they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Now, what was the new teaching with authority? It wasn't, again, we don't know what Jesus was saying at first that they were astonished by. It must have been good, but that's not what they're talking about here. They're talking specifically about demons saying, be gone, demon, and it has to leave. That's the new thing. This new teaching 
was about the exorcism that they all witnessed. That's the best teaching, right? To actually witness it happening. That's the best. But the idea of exorcising demons was nothing that was new. They would have been familiar, all the different cultures of the time, Jewish culture, even, even to today, the idea of exorcising demons is not terribly new. But in the Jewish culture at the time, and even today, it's a very um, ritualistic kind of a procedure. Okay, so what they would have done in the time of Jesus, if they recognized it, and that's the hard part always, is recognizing that somebody is possessed or is, or is demonized. But what they would have done is engage this person or this demon ultimately in some sort of back and forth kind of banter, verbal challenges with the goal of really trying to learn, discern who this demon was, typically by name, and yes, demons have names, trying to learn who that demon was, and then some sort of, of, again, verbal debate and jousting back and forth convince that demon to leave. Sometimes that convincing would be noxious fumes, smoke, sulfur, trying to irritate the demon enough to where it wanted to leave. Sometimes it actually went all the way to a physical beating of the person to try and convince the demon to, believe, to leave. Either way, Jesus doesn't engage in that kind of verbal back and forth. There's no jousting. He just commands the demon to leave by the authority given to him by the Father. We see that in Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's that same authority that's given to you through the Holy Spirit. That same power. So the result here, we know the result, the last uh, scripture for this day, Mark 1.28, immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding region of Galilee. That's the point. The point of this demonic encounter, the point of going into that synagogue was not to teach them some, some new revelation. It was to show them the power that Jesus contained. And that, and that story, that knowledge of that power spread throughout the Galilee. That's why. So the point of the miraculous in the time of Jesus and the point of the miraculous today is the same. And it's to make known the source of that power. It's not about the act. It's about the source of that power. Of that power. Now, being delivered from that demon made a huge difference in the life of that man. Guaranteed, he felt different. His friends and family probably thought that was an awesome thing that happened. But the news spreading throughout the region, that was the biggest impact. And that was the reason that Jesus traveled around doing this. And when the miraculous happens in our lives, Satan will do anything he can to make sure the news of that doesn't spread. He'll do anything he can. He'll try, number one, he'll try to make you think, well, you can't tell people the miraculous happened because they're going to think you're weird. Or they're going to doubt that it really happened and you'll have to explain it and you don't know how that happened, only that it did. How many times do we get caught up? I can't explain how this happened, so I'm not even going to say it because I can't answer the questions that are going to come my way. See, 
Satan and his demons would so much rather have you tell people how you're still struggling. You're still struggling. And even saying things like, I, we just keep praying, hoping that someday we'll have victory over this thing. Satan wants to keep you in that place. Then people can say, okay, well, we'll pray along with you and we'll hope that this happens. Church, we need to have that authority, that assuredness that when we call it out in the name of Jesus, when we pray for it, when we ask for it, when we cast out demons, when we ask for healing prayer, those things are going to happen. It's not, I hope it does someday. It is going to happen, and we can stand on that. It's the same today. Scripture tells us it's going to be the same tomorrow. Satan has the same tactics. Revelation 12, 11, And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. The last verse of this, or the last part that a lot of people don't quote, And they did not love their life, even when faced with death. See, back in... Back in those times, or maybe even now, what we're faced with is, worst case scenario, you say something like that, look, I saw Jesus heal somebody. I saw Jesus raise somebody from the dead. I saw a demon leave a person. The worst you can get is kind of shaking your head, maybe some unbelief, maybe some mockery, maybe a little ridicule, some embarrassment. In the end times, though, it's going to be even more. Being steadfast with your testimony in the greatness and the lordship of Jesus Christ and his power and his mercy in the end days will lead all the way to death. The only way you can stand up against something like that is being sure that you know that you know. I've seen it. I'll see it again. I can expect it and I can stand on it. This isn't some hypothetical I've been told. I've seen it happen. and That's the kind of testimony that will defeat Satan in the end. We know that. So I want to share a story with you. <coughs> Excuse me. We'll do more testimonies in coming weeks, but I have one that I want to share with you. And it encompasses both physical healing, miraculous physical healing, and the confronting and driving out of demons. And it happened when I was on a mission trip. The story I'm telling you about, I was on a mission trip to Africa years ago, and it was Mozambique specifically. We were traveling with a group of guys throughout the area, and we were doing ministry. We were doing mission trip kind of things. And we were in this small village. We are actually backpacking village to village. We were in this small village, just minding our own business at the time. And a runner comes from a neighboring village, and he comes up to us. And he says, are you the Christian missionaries? And we went, I guess we are. I guess that's us. What can we do for you? And he says, and he says, Papa needs prayer. Poppy. Poppy needs prayer. Like, who's Poppy? Well, Poppy, that was just kind of a nickname for the, the big man in their village. Okay, the big, we'd call him maybe a chief or something, although it wasn't a formal office, but he was kind of the big guy in their village. It was a neighboring village. So he said, come, come with us. He needs prayer. Okay, we'll do that. So we leave, and we're a little bit like, we're unsure how this is going to work because this was a mixture of Christians and Muslims in, in this region. Turns out, Poppy was a Muslim man, and this village was predominantly Muslim. We go there, and this guy leads us and our little group of guys into the back room of a store. It'd be like a, a small little uh, convenience store, maybe with a storeroom in the back. 
We go into this dimly lit storeroom. There's literally one bulb hanging in the, in the building. And in the corner of this storeroom, amidst all the boxes and junk that was in there, was a mat on the floor with a man laying on this mat. Big, distended belly, and his legs were toothpicks. And he's just laying there kind of covered with this blanket. And he says, that's Poppy. Pray for Poppy because he's dying. And so we look at him, and we gather around him, and we say, do you, do you want prayer from us? And he says, yes. And I said, okay, we will pray for you, but just so that you know, we're going to pray for you in the name of Jesus Christ. Is that what you want? And we knew later, after talking to him and finding out the story, the, the local imam had come and prayed for him. Um, there were witch doctors who had come and prayed for him. There were herbalists and different uh, animal spirit healers that had come and talked to this man, none of them were able to get him up off of his mat or heal him. And when we said, do you want prayer in the name of Jesus? He went, what do I have to lose? Sure. So we're praying for this man. And in my mind, I'm going, how's this going to turn out? Because I'm sort of the leader of this group of Christians. And all these people expect me to do something here. (laughs) What's going to happen? I didn't know what was going to happen until the Lord spoke to me. And he said, we're going to heal this man today. Put your hand on his legs and heal his legs. And so I put my hand on his legs and I go, okay, here we go. And we're praying healing. In the midst of praying from the back of the room, we start hearing a voice. Now, everybody is quiet. You could hear a pin drop. And in the back of the room is a voice going, leave him alone. Why are you leaving with him? You don't belong here. Stop speaking to him. Go away. He's our family. We can take care of him. He doesn't need you. We don't need you. You can leave. It's all just a lie. You can't do that. And immediately I thought, that's a demonic voice. Now, it was coming out of a human being. So we turn around. The response to the voice in the back of the room is, you shut up. Shut your mouth right now in the name of Jesus. You don't have a say here. Your religion, your thoughts, your spirit is dead. The spirit of Christ is going to raise this man, and you shut your mouth. We won't have it. And immediately, quiet. We found out later that that was a relative of the man who he hadn't seen in two years. And he just randomly showed up that day. But he had to submit to the name of Jesus. And so we're praying for this man and the Lord says to me, tell him to stand up and walk. And I'm expecting his legs to suddenly plump up and be muscular and everything and like, you're gonna see it. But no, his legs were still toothpicks, belly still like this. Jesus says, tell him to get up and walk. So I tell him, get up and walk in the name of Jesus. And he looks at me and he literally does this. He goes like, do you see this? That ain't happening, right? So I go, no, stand up in the name of Jesus and walk. And so he stands up and he's kind of doing this like, am I about to fall down? And then before we know it, he's walking back and forth across the room. He's walking back and forth across. And not only this, now you would think he'd like, okay, well, that's, that's enough. I'm going to sit down and not press my luck. He stands there in this room and he talks to us for probably half an hour. The Lord healed him that day. Silence the voice of the demon telling us that we can't do that in the name of Jesus and healed this man and he stood up and he walked. Now, 
I'd like to tell you the story ended with him giving his life to Jesus at that moment. And in fact, we asked him, we said, you, that kind of power, that can live in you if you give your life to Christ. And he said, I won't do it without my wife. So we sent one of the runners to go find his wife in the village, bring her back. So the two of them are there together and we're trying to explain to them that they can give their hearts to Christ. And their, their response was, look, if we do that, our families will disown us. Our families will, they'll take her away. I will never see my wife again. Who knows what they'll do to me? I'll lose my status in the village. I can't because there were all these people around. He said, I can't do it right now. I know that he wanted in his heart to do it. I know that he acknowledged the power of who Jesus was. But the culture and the circumstances didn't allow it. Now we've been in contact with the missionaries that are there local, and they continue to work on him. He is a believer in Christ. Culturally, he has a hard time saying it, given his status. The day will come. I know it will come. But he saw the power of Jesus, and not only that, so did we. And I'm telling you, so that those of you who doubt that those sorts of things happen today, I was one of those until I stood there and the Lord used me to make it happen. Church, it happens. The miraculous happens. And sharing that with one another, sharing it openly, making it a normal part of our lives, that's what will defeat the enemy. So let's don't take those things. Let's normalize those amazing things. And so as we go into communion, a wrap-up, I don't have a big fanfare wrap-up to this message. But if you have, who here? Let me ask you this. Who here has seen the miraculous work in their lives? Something that without a doubt, there's no other way. Look at all these people that have stories to share. Tell one another. Tell somebody about your story of how the miraculous happened in your life. And let's make that a normal part of our lives. Amen? The worship team is going to come up. Let's pray. And then let's take communion together. We have the crosses where you can do self-serve. Gabe and I will be up front and we'll serve you. When we take communion, though, we're, it's more than just an act of remembering what Jesus did. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But it's so much more than just going, hey, that was cool what he did, right? You're aligning yourself with his power. You're aligning yourself with his mission. And if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to do that and reaffirm that in your heart. I accept what Jesus did for me. I accept the gift of the Holy Spirit through his sacrifice on the cross. And I will align myself with his mission to glorify God in everything I do. And nothing glorifies God more than seeing miracles in action. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for sending your son, Jesus, to this earth, to walk this earth, to show us what the power of the Holy Spirit in us looks like in action. So, Father, use us. Guide us into those situations where we can boldly stand and say, yes, the power of the Holy Spirit lives in me and I expect the miraculous in my life. Father, we thank you for the miracles that you do amongst us every single day. Help us. Help us to be your messengers of this world, messengers of your power and of your mercy and your goodness. Lord, help us to see those things in our daily lives. Help us to expect them in our everyday. 
Help it to become not just something that's a cool story now and then. Help the miraculous in our lives, the healing, the deliverance, the strongholds broken. Help those to be such a normal part of our lives that when somebody says, do you have a story about the miraculous? We can say, where do I start? You mean today or yesterday? Father, we thank you. We thank you for all these things and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.